to a special edition of the Living Healthy Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that affects millions of people every single day, mental illness. You know, in the fitness industry, we spend a lot of time focusing on the body, and in doing so, we often forget about the mind. So starting with this podcast and for the next week, we're going to change that. LA Fitness will be participating in Mental Illness Awareness Week, which was established by Congress back in 1990. Our goal is to help people look beyond just the health of their body and to recognize the importance of their mental health as well. So to help us learn more about this important topic, we'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Neil Doshi. Dr. Doshi is a psychiatrist with Kaiser Permanente of Orange County. He's double board certified in adult psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. He's worked with the VA, the prison system, private practices, county clinics, and is now joining us on the Living Healthy Podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. First question I have is mental illness is said to affect millions of people every single day, but aren't we all a little mentally ill? I mean, I think that's a fair assertion. Um, If we think of mental illness as a difficulty or impairment in thoughts or emotions or behavior, I think we all experience that from time to time. The difference would be, of course, in how it functionally impacts us and how it takes away from our daily life. Right, right. Yeah, because I could see that um, that's kind of maybe the difference between uh, whether it's severe or kind of just like, uh, like whether it's crippling to you or not, or whether you can kind of function day to day with it. Absolutely. We're always looking to evaluate the severity of anything before we treat. So throughout this podcast, we're probably going to be referencing some stats, and these stats are from the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Uh, their website's nami.org, N-A-M-I.org, uh, where you can learn more, read more about this stuff. I encourage you to do that. But here's the big one. Uh, approximately one in five adults in the U.S., that's 44 million people, uh, experience mental illness in a given year. Uh, that's somewhat shocking, but I looked a little bit deeper, and apparently there's categories Uh, Can you talk about the categories that mental illness falls into? Yeah, I mean, I think there's various categories um, that we can look at mental illness through. One of the ones that um, NAMI points out is AMI versus SMI, basically any mental illness versus serious mental illness. So any mental illness, like you mentioned, is very common, shockingly so with the numbers. Serious mental illness is a little less common, about one in every 24 Americans. And that would be something um, that really does impact your daily life to a large extent. What are some of the most common mental illnesses, I guess, that you see? And, And kind of in general, what separates a mental illness from just having a bad day? I very commonly see anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, such as major depressive disorder, Uh, bipolar disorder, and of course, substance abuse. And the way that we differentiate um, just having a couple bad days versus um, a true mental health issue would be on length of time, severity, and again, that impact on your daily life. So for example, we all get the common cold, right? Every December, January knocks us out for two, three good days. Uh, but I don't, and it affects your lungs and your nasal sinuses. But I don't think anyone would turn to you and say, "Oh, you have a lung impairment," you know, right. on the level of pneumonia. Hmm. Right. What you would say is, "Yeah, I had two, three tough days with my lungs and my nasal passages, but I'm doing much better now, and I'm fully recovered, and I don't anticipate that this is going to happen again anytime soon." Versus 
for more serious mental health issues, you would expect things to recur. You would expect the difficulty to really throw you for a loop. And I think that's where treatment is necessary. Is, is the stigma, that gets into the stigma a little bit, because I think we have this perception, like something with a common cold or a fever, we think of it as, all right, you're sick, you're going to get better, you move on, it comes and goes. With mental illness, I think when you hear that, most people consider it as like, this is a permanent scar on you. This is a permanent thing that you're constantly dealing with. Is, is that not really the case? Is it something that goes, comes and goes as often as a cold? I think uh, you're touching on something important. The perception's a difficult thing for people who are afflicted with this. So it's not a physical thing. If I see that you've got a C collar around your neck, I'm not going to ask you to do certain things physically, right? Um, If I notice that you've got a cast on your leg, I'm probably not going to ask you to help get the groceries out of the car, Right. right? Right, right. But if you're dealing with depression or anxiety it can be just as debilitating but without being able to see it it's harder for all of us to empathize and i think that's the issue that comes up for a lot of people and i don't think people are wanting to walk around with shirts saying hey this is what i'm dealing with you know back off but at the same time um, it's important at least for people you're close to work with to recognize they may be going through something Right. Interesting. That actually brings up a question. I've often wondered about what you can do if you know someone dealing with anxiety or depression or someone that's just going through something. What are some ways you can reach out and help them? I think listening to their story, it's different for everyone. We give these categories like depression, anxiety, but really it's very uh, personal. And so I think listening, asking them what you can do for them that might help them. It might be as little as, you know, I'm going to need a little time in the morning to kind of work through some of my stuff uh, before we get started with the day. It might be something that, that little. It might be something bigger. You know, this is what I'm going to need to be, like if you're a boss and you might ask your employee, what, what could I do for you? They might say, well, I have certain appointments I need to go to. I have certain things I need to do to take care of myself. And if you can respect that, we'll all, you know, do well together. So I think just listening to them is Mm -hmm. the basic starting point and can really accomplish much of that. Hmm. It seems like um, with uh, NAMI, they're doing this campaign, Cure Stigma, um, and listening seems to be an important part of just understanding um, kind of just what someone's going through. But it seems like there's a gap, like uh, one of the stats that they provide is like, it's the average uh, delay between the onset of symptoms and intervention is eight to 10 years, like eight to 10 years before anything's done about it. I mean, you don't go eight to 10 years, like you said, with a broken leg and then handle it. So is that because this is such an internalized thing that um, speaking about it is going to help us externalize it and make it more of a, something that's on the tip of your tongue that you can handle sooner? Yeah, the the delay is unfortunate. And like you mentioned, when we can't wear it physically, when people can't notice it right away, it's going to take longer for action to be made. Also, and, and I think it's difficult for people, if you're struggling, you might think you are just having a bad day or two or three or 35. And mm. then you start realizing, hey, you know, maybe there is something I need to do here. And there's a lot of guilt, I think, and shame that goes into that. And this is probably why some of the delay is there. And of course, stigma plays a big role, as you mentioned. 
as we, and I'm so glad that NAMI is doing this, um, as we try and destigmatize, we can allow people to get the help they need sooner before it becomes entrenched in their lives and something that's really difficult to deal with. Hmm. Right. Would you say that, you know, depression and anxiety, mental illness, I guess, in general, does it really come from genetics or can it be something that kind of just happens to anyone, regardless if it runs in the family or not? So I think genetics play a large role. I think the data shows that. But it's also true that people can acquire anxiety, depression, even without any family history. So what we feel, and again, you know, the brain's kind of the final frontier. Like if you have a problem with your knee, we pretty much know everything in medicine, in medical sciences that you need to know about the knee. It's not a big mystery. But the brain isn't that way. So we're still learning more all the time. There used to be that popular stat we all grew up hearing, like you only lose, you, you only use 10% of your brain. Right, yeah. That's totally not true. <laughs> you use a lot of your brain. We only understand 10% of how our brain works. Is that what it means? I think you're on spot right. there. I think it's more huh. that we only understand so much. Huh. Um, so I think in terms of what you're saying, there are things that we can do. There are things that we need to get started with. And it's difficult to destigmatize, but if we all kind of pitch in with this together, we can get to a better place for a lot of people and get some people who are struggling silently to come out of the woodwork. In art, the way society is now where we're all so interconnected to each other with social media and just we're constantly text messaging, you know, like you get a text message and if you don't respond in 20 minutes, your friend's like, hey man, you okay? You're like, but then like you text someone and they don't get back to you in 20 minutes. You're like, what the heck? So we're so like uh, on the, addicted to this feedback loop almost. Does that, is, do you think we're going to start seeing like more cases of anxiety being diagnosed? Absolutely. I think we're already seeing it, and I think it's only going to continue to increase for the time being. What we notice is that um, technology kind of outpaces our knowledge of it, if that mm. makes sense. Hmm. So when technology is out, there's technology out there to do all sorts of things, but we don't understand the repercussions of that just yet. And as we do, as we learn more, Five years ago, you would have not thought that you'd be inundated with text messages and you may never listen to a voicemail again in your life. Right. Right? <laughs> but now we know that that's the case. And so we're starting to see some of the effects of that. Like you mentioned, if somebody doesn't text back or if you, doesn't, if you don't text back, what does that mean? People are developing their own solutions to it. People always do. But we're lagging behind the initial technology. Hmm. So I think as we get a better handle on how we want to harness technology for good and not for evil in that sense, right. I think that we'll do a better job. But yeah, we're, we're probably a little behind the curve hmm. in terms of what we're actually able to do versus what maybe what we actually want in our lives. Hmm. Do you really want to know everything that everyone you went to high school with is doing right now? Right. right. Maybe not. Right. Do you want to see baby pictures of everyone you've ever known? Right. Possibly. Right. But I think... Setting it up for success is the most important thing. Using filters, only using it at times you need to, not feeling compelled to do something right. I think is a that's, big thing. Yeah, that seems like the big thing. Like Because it's new and everyone's doing it, there's that peer pressure. You feel compelled, like, I should like seeing baby pictures of everyone that I've ever known. Like You feel like you should, and that's kind of like going back to the whole stigma thing, which is like you feel like you shouldn't suffer from depression. So you don't want to tell anyone that you suffer from it because you feel like that's not normal. So I think that's really interesting. But 
Is there a chemical thing going on in our brain, though, that causes something like depression or anxiety? I, I, like, kind of along with the g- genetic thing, but is there like just chemical, a chemical imbalance that's happening that's causing this? You know, that was a very prevalent theory in the 80s and 90s, is that there was this chemical imbalance. I still think for certain types of depression, it's probably true. But depression is myriad things. It's multifactorial. Mm-hmm. So um, like you were mentioning, depression could be genetic. Depression could be something that comes out of a very difficult life circumstance. So I don't know if it's fair to say that all depression is characterized by a chemical imbalance, but I think that there's certainly subtypes that we're learning more and more about in our profession. This is all, like I Mm -hmm. mentioned, kind of new stuff for us that we can see as responding well to chemical changes in the brain. But because the brain is so hard for us to evaluate, um, it's hard to know exactly what's going on. I imagine that uh, if someone comes in and has severe depression, are there uh, prescription drugs that are that are, are there drugs that are prescribed to handle that and to kind of deal with the chemical side of it? Or absolutely, um, medications are one treatment strategy. You know, it shouldn't be the only one, but they're one treatment strategy, and they can be very effective for certain types of depression, and um, and they work in the way that you mentioned, responding and making changes at the chemical level, but therapy is a very exciting tool that can be helpful uh, for depression. And there's many other ways that we can help people with depression, anxiety, other mental health issues that don't have to do necessarily with just medications. So kind of at the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned that we tend to focus on our, our body more than our mind, especially in the fitness industry. But how can the body actually help the mind? So help mental illness in particular, can exercise be one of those things to help you get over a mental illness? There's lots of research on exercise in depression and anxiety. It's fascinating work. What we know is that the body can absolutely help the mind. So exercise can help you de-stress. That's big already. It can help increase in, increase your memory, improve your memory. It can help your sleep quality. Sometimes sleeping mm. well can help set you up for a good day, can help decrease your anxiety. So like someone that might have insomnia? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of the best things that we can do to help treat the insomnia. Hmm. And then it can also even help improve your mood. What we're learning about the brain is that there's this phenomenon called neuroplasticity. So to break that down, it's basically there's new pathways that can be built within the brain, which is something that we didn't think was possible 30, 40 years ago. And we're learning that there's multiple ways to achieve this. It might be medications. It might also be exercise. We're seeing good data that exercise can definitely do some of that work. Does that mean that by building new pathways that maybe in the future there's a way to actually cure depression or anxiety? I look at depression and anxiety more like I look at diabetes. We all know someone who's diabetic. And we all know that if you eat really well, if you exercise, if you take care of yourself, it's very possible that you can be off diabetic medications. For the severe types, maybe not. Maybe you are always going to need that insulin shot. But you can decrease how much it affects you. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I look at depression and anxiety. If we're able to utilize different treatments, including exercise, we can minimize the toll it takes on an individual. I don't know if I want to use the word cure, but we can definitely decrease its impact on our daily functioning, which I think is almost as good. Right. Mm-hmm. 
So I think one of the biggest obstacles when it comes to exercising just in general for the public is it just starting it, just starting to do it. That's one of the biggest obstacles. Is that obstacle even harder to overcome if you do suffer from a mental illness? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely with depression, it's tougher. Mm, okay. It may already be tough to get out of bed. And then you're asking someone to exercise on top of that. And that's going to be a difficult thing for them to endure. But there's ways that we can work with people. For my own patients, I tell them, this is another component of your treatment. And one that you can do on your own. Don't need to come to see a physician to work on it. Something that feels good naturally. Something you can do independently or socially. So there's ways that we can help people to see it as a good treatment strategy. But we have to acknowledge that it is more difficult for them. Right, right. I think this might be actually a good segue into bringing our producer Matt on the show to talk about his personal experience with mental illness. Uh, We wanted someone to share that perspective because we think it's important. Um, And Matt uh, joined LA Fitness about as an employee about eight months ago. Um, he's suffered from mental illness in the past and, but he's begun exercising and he's seen some of the results of that. So first of all, Matt, thanks for, uh, laying it out there and talking about this with us, but can you also, can you, can you start off by telling us what is your relationship to mental illness? What's your history with it? Um, yeah. So when I was, um, when I was young, when I was 14 in high school, I was first, uh, diagnosed with, I guess it would be major depressive disorder or whatever the medical term (laughs) uh, would be. Later, about 10 years after that, I was further diagnosed uh, with PTSD. So I was able to link it to some trauma I experienced as as a kid. And I've tried so many, all all the different avenues, you know, I've uh, medication, and I'm one of the people that medication didn't really do much for. And then meditation, talk therapy is big for me. I, I respond really well to talk therapy. And also, oh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you've, you've obviously tried a lot of different ways to kind of help combat this and, and the feelings that you were going through. When did exercise become a part of it? Well, the thing is, so with, um, with depression, the way I experienced depression is that it's, um, I, I experienced in like a very debilitating lack of motivation just to do anything. Um, is that, is that common, Dr. Doshi? Is that the lack of motivation? Is that a big, big it's absolutely very common. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, it can be very difficult to endure. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, when they think of depression, they just think of like somebody sad and mopey all the time, you know, but that, I, I mean, sometimes I am, I am sad for, you know, reasons I can't, uh, I, I, I can't immediately recall, but you know, for the most part, it's the, it's just like the crippling lack of motivation. So how did you get over that to actually start exercising that? Cause you seem like that's like the worst kind of depression to have to then start an exercise routine. Like we were talking about. So how did you, cause now you are going to the gym. Yeah. So how did that happen? I, I think it's a matter of putting myself in a situation where I'm accountable for something. And so I went from never being in the gym to now trying to attain a goal or something like that. And there are a lot of forces that are encouraging me to actually, you know, stick to the regiment and form a habit. Um, and like being around, like you now work for a fitness company. So bring in the office where multiple people are going all the time. Yeah. And is that, is that kind of a factor, like having that social support system, Dr. Doshi to kind of, I think for some people it's huge. 
I think it gets them out. It gets them to do something that they may traditionally not be as fond of, but they realize is a great component of their well-being. Well, yeah, and that's really what it's become. I mean, uh, the I I went into the gym thinking that I was going to lose some weight, and you know, it was going to do all these things. As a matter of fact, the depression and the PTSD and everything weren't even on the I, list. Uh, probably uh, weren't yeah. even on the list. Right. Um, you know, I experienced a lot of insomnia. I, I have a lot of anxiety and 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 things like that as well. And um, you know, it's helped, uh, as you've said previously, it truly has helped me regulate a sleep cycle that now. I can, I, I, it's more regimented. I still have nightmares and things like that now and again, but I go to sleep at a, at a, at a more decent hour. I wake up with more hours of sleep under my belt and that kind of, that kind of sets me up for a lot of success through the day. Um, and just, just generally, I feel like I look better, you know, which is, which is big, um, for me. I feel like I have something to, talk to people about at the you know, office. I've, I've actually noticed you're a, your whole personality has kind of changed since you started going. Um, just you seemed happier when you first started talking to me about it. And you, it seems like something you're excited about. I didn't look at this as a sort of treatment. I didn't look at this. It, my, you know, my mental illness and what I go through every day wasn't even part of the uh, part of the reason for why I did this. It was like, I wanted to be more involved with something at work. I wanted to, you know, appeal to my own vanity and put myself at the forefront of something. <laughs> yeah. It was funny cause we were, well, when we were planning this episode, I brought it up, you know, cause you produced the show and, um, and you were really excited. You're like, this might be perfect. I should come on and talk about this because you have that background of suffering from a mental illness and depression you've begun exercising and you've seen the benefits of that. So, I mean, that's why I think it was a great idea to have you on to talk about that. Yeah. And you know, I think it's, 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 uh, it's the most interesting part about it for me is that it is, I consider it now a, a treatment strategy for me. You know, I don't use talk therapy as much as I used to. I, I, um, and when I'm in crisis, sometimes I do, you know, but it's not something I have to call upon. I don't use medication. Um, anymore. And I, you know, I still meditate and do all of that, but you know, this whole exercise routine has been, has had a profound effect on my own mental stability. I would never have thought about it had I not just noticed it from doing it. So. Hmm. Well, thank you, Matt, for coming on the show and sharing your story. Hopefully that inspires someone else out there to talk about their mental illness as well. Uh, turning back to Dr. Doshi, do you have any examples of patients that have started exercising and seen it help their mental outlook? Absolutely. I think your story is uh, fortunately um, not uncommon. I have a lot of my patients. We live here in Southern California, and I've told them, especially right now when the sun's out till 7 or 8 o'clock, this is something that's easy, free. It's something you can do by yourself or with friends, getting out there. If you like hiking, so be it. If you like bike riding on the beach, fine. We got that for you too. If you like coming into the gym and having a routine, that's great too. And I've seen it improve anxiety. I have absolutely seen it um, take sleep issues and totally take them away, mm, which has been right. phenomenal, really improve mood. And there's one aspect we haven't even mentioned is some of the self-esteem that comes for doing something for an issue you have, but doing something yourself. Right. I think that's a big right. thing. Proactively too. like attacking it and seeing change. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. Right. 
Can you talk about um, some of the, do you know, is there some chemistry behind exercise and how it helps mental illness like depression? Is it, I've heard things like words thrown around like serotonin is increased and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Can you, is that true or? Yeah, I mean, I think there's downstream effects of exercise um, on a bunch of different neurotransmitter systems like serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine. These are the kind of ones that we hear the most often. What we know and what's the best studied is that we always hear that running, people get runners high, hmm, right? Right. Um, and if you exercise, if you do good aerobic exercise, like you would do in a gym, you get that high. What that, deconstructing that, what we really have is an increase in endorphins, okay. right? And endorphins is a term for basically endogenous morphine. It's a feel-good substance in our brain. Okay. okay. And normally it's produced. It's a legal drug. It's a legal <laughs> drug. <right>? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, normally it's produced in response to pain, which makes sense. You're in pain. Endorphins are released by your brain because your brain says, hey, I don't like this pain. Let's get this situation better. Huh. Well, we don't have to wait until we're in pain to have that happen. Huh. There are lots of things out there that can normally, legally um, right. introduce these endorphins into our system. Uh, one's laughter. Laughter. We just released some. Exactly. <laughs> and another one, of course, that we can rely on is exercise. So as you have this endorphin release, you'll notice that there's all these downstream effects. You know, some of those we've mentioned also improve memory, improve sleep, better mood, decreased anxiety. All these things are possible. That's interesting that you mentioned the runner is high. Are there certain types of exercises where you can get more of those feel-good hormones? I mean, would you say cardio is better than strength training? Yeah, I, I think there's more data around aerobic exercise, so typical cardiovascular exercise. But I think anything that you do routinely, regularly, that gets your heart rate up, that gets you to have some good deep breaths, get some oxygen to all parts of your body is going to help. I don't think there's any specific prescription that someone should have aside from do it often, enjoy it, do it either by yourself or with friends, but just get out there and make it part of your life. So as we conclude each episode, we like to do a segment called Actionable Advice, where we kind of give our members something or our listeners something to take home with them that they can take away from this episode. So what would you say are a few things people can uh, do to help improve their lives if they suffer from a mental illness? Well, one of the numbers you brought up is, is very profound, the eight to 10 year delay in treatment. And that's where I'd like to focus. If we can have people, you can talk to your primary care doctor. You can talk if you have, a, you know, someone, a mental health professional, that's wonderful. But even talking to a primary care doctor, um, going on the NAMI website and reading and learning and getting good information we have a chapter here in Orange County, a NAMI chapter that's very strong, lots of people wanting to help each other, and they've been through this themselves. So you're getting it from your peers. I think those are the best things that you can do to get started. Of course, exercise, um, doing things that you enjoy, doing things that are going to release those endorphins are also part of it. But if you're delaying that treatment because you're not sure where you're at with it, I think the best thing is just to have that conversation. Let someone else listen to you and see if they can be part of your process. Right. Talk, so talking about it, first of all, getting that diagnosis, uh, diagnosis as early as possible so that you can start some form of treatment plan. Um, 
it sounds like kind of the most important thing. And that's kind of the idea with us doing this podcast is we want to talk about it. That's the, that's what we need to do. You have to talk about it. It's easy to get stuck in your own head and to be scared to talk about it. So finding someone that's willing to listen is really key. I think. Absolutely. It's definitely key. And then trusting that process. If you can trust that process, if you can take it forward, I think you can get to better places and I totally understand from my patients how difficult that might be initially, but I know that I've had hundreds have come to me and said, I'm so glad that we're on this journey now together. And so that's what I want to impart to people is getting on that journey, getting it started um, can be very rewarding in and of itself. So as we wrap up here, uh, I wanted to share something. A few weeks ago on the show, I mentioned that I was going through a bit of a depression myself. And what I've found over the years is that talking about it, as we've been discussing, and telling people about it when it's actually happening to me helps me get through it quicker. So what I would say is the next time someone asks you that question that we all get asked every single day, how you doing? Uh, If you don't feel great, tell them that you aren't doing great. Tell them the truth and see if that helps you like it does for me. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. But before we wrap it up, we want to thank Dr. Doshi for coming on the program, talking to us about mental illness and explaining some of the ways exercise can help us control it. We also want to thank our producer, Matt, for sharing his story as well. If you have your own story of how exercise helped you control or overcome a mental illness, we're inviting you to speak out about it all week long on our social media channels. Throughout the week, we'll be sharing motivational advice about how you can help your mental health through exercise. So if you're someone that suffers from depression, anxiety, insomnia, or any other mental illness, we hope that you'll learn at least one new thing this week that helps you with your battle. The podcast itself will be back in two weeks where we'll be joined by Spartan racer Matt Harrison to talk about what it takes to train at an elite level. Finally, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or on our blog at blog.lafitness.com. That's the quickest way to get updated when we post a new episode. Just make sure you turn your notifications on. Thanks for being a good listener again, and hopefully we'll be seeing a few more of you in the gym.